the city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> yeah, I get the point, too. Dogs and cats living together? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. I still am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Not to mention your favorite podcast site, whatever it may be. We are where you are blanketing planet earth five days a week i'm brad Fried, and we could use a blanket right now a security blanket uh five days a week i'm brad friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com let's start with some good news uh, shall we because i think we all pretty much need that more than anything right now more now than ever uh, in fact Yes, primary elections were held on Tuesday in three states, Florida, Arizona, and Illinois, after Ohio canceled its primary at the last minute. I would argue correctly so, uh, due to health concerns over the coronavirus. There were problems for voters in the states that decided to vote anyway amidst a global pandemic and warnings from health officials to stay at home, to avoid crowds larger than 10 people. Uh, We will get to some of those uh, reported results uh, from the uh, Democratic presidential nominating contest in a moment. But for a start, here's some good news for progressives out there. In an election marked by low turnout and lack of basic voting supplies because of coronavirus concerns, Marie Newman, a progressive pro-abortion rights challenger to incumbent Democratic Rep. Dan Lipinski has won the Democratic primary in Illinois' 3rd Congressional District. Awesome. That is a major victory for the progressive movement, and according to Addie Baird at BuzzFeed News, an especially welcome one after disappointing loss in Texas earlier this month. 
for Jessica Cisneros when she fell short in her primary challenge against incumbent Democrat Henry Cuellar, another anti-abortion moderate uh, Democrat. Well, that's also good news, I would say, for women as well, for the right to control their own bodies. For Marie Newman winning in Illinois, yes, indeed. She, uh, with 99% reporting as of now, she leads Lipinski 47 Point one to 44.7. That's a two and a half point uh, lead. So that's close. But it will, in fact, uh, likely hold. Newman ran in 2018 as well. She lost that year by just two points. This cycle, she was backed by Planned Parenthood, NARAL, Emily's List, and Justice Democrats, the progressive group that helped Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat former Congress Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley back in 2018. In fact, uh, Newman also secured endorsements from Senator Bernie Sanders and, yes, Ocasio-Cortez herself. Lipinski is one of the most conservative Democrats in the House and is known nationally for his staunch anti-abortion beliefs. He has a failing grade of just 25 percent from Planned Parenthood. And in January, he signed on to the amicus brief pushing the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm. And this guy is a Democrat. Well, he's a Democrat out of a job uh, pretty soon, it looks like. Uh, He also voted against uh, the Affordable Care Act, as I recall. Uh, Newman called Lipinski anti-worker, anti-woman and anti-middle class saying that he is no better than many of the Republicans out there. He is so one issue issue focused on anti-abortion issues. It affects all of his decision making. Lipinski was supported, however, by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. That's the party's official House campaign arm. The race became the subject of national attention last spring when Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, the head of the DCCC, scheduled and then canceled a fundraiser for Lipinski after activist outcry. She said in a statement when canceling the event that every dollar spent trying to defeat one of our Democratic incumbents is a dollar that we cannot spend defeating Republicans. And, of course, she is right about that. That said, you don't need to defeat Republicans when you got a Democrat who is actually calling for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. A Democrat? Seriously? And voting against the Affordable Care Act? Do you need Democrats like that, Congresswoman Bustos? Tell it to uh, AOC when it comes to that. Uh, She has done more, frankly, for the Democratic Party since her 2018 election than, well, pretty much anyone else in the party, to be frank. Vox.com notes that uh, Newman managed to peel away some party support, however. She won an endorsement from Chicago-area Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who is a member of House Democratic leadership. She won that support in both 2018 and again in 2020. The Lipinski first won election to the House way back in 2004. He inherited the seat from his father. He will not be a member of the House when the 117th Congress is sworn in on January 2021. Newman, in all likelihood, will be the next member of Congress from that district. The third district is a deep blue seat. Lipinski won by almost 48 points back in 2018, and the Democratic nominee should have no trouble winning come November, according to Vox. So there's your good news. Yay for the good news. (laughs) As everything uh, now goes all the way over a cliff from here. (laughs)
It's all downhill from here. Not really. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Hi. Uh, well, uh, mostly. Maybe. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, here's where we are on the uh, presidential level. Joe Biden reportedly defeated Bernie Sanders rather soundly, according to the unverified and still unofficial numbers in all three states which held elections on Tuesday. He trounced Sanders in Florida by a whopping 39 points, 62 to 23 percent in the Sunshine State. It was a similar story in Illinois, where Biden won by 23 points, 59 to 35 over the Vermont senator. And with 88 percent reporting as of airtime, the vice president also the former vice president also defeated Sanders in Arizona which was Bernie's best chance for the day, given its large Latino population. He uh, defeated Sanders there by 12 points, at least as of now, all of which gives Biden a lead in the national delegate race of about 300 delegates, with Biden now having 1,179 pledged delegates to Bernie's 882. 1,991 are needed to clinch the Democratic nomination. There were problems for voters, as I said, in all three states on Tuesday, including hundreds of last-minute poll closures, locations that did not open up in time due to a shortage of poll workers, hundreds of whom canceled at the last minute in places like South Florida and Chicago, a lack of sanitation supplies, particularly in Chicago, and simply a lack of equipment in some locations amid what turned out to be, no surprise, very low in-person turnout at the polls, most of which is being blamed on the coronavirus with a lot of early and mail voting uh, taking place in advance of Election Day. On Wednesday, after his uh, thumping on Tuesday night, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders said he is now reassessing his campaign, raising questions about whether he will drop out after losing three more states and falling prohibitively behind Joe Biden in the 2020 delegate race. Uh, uh, Sanders spokesperson denied a report that the Vermont senator was suspending his campaign on Wednesday. But that word came as Sanders pulled down digital advertising on Facebook and on Google, triggering further confusion in a contest already upended by the coronavirus. Earlier in the day on Wednesday, campaign manager Faz Shakir said that Sanders, quote, is going to have uh, going to be having conversations with supporters to ass to assess his campaign. But Shakir also suggested that Sanders was in no hurry to make any decisions about ending his 2020 bid, noting that the next primary contest at this point is at least three weeks away. That due to all of the uh, cancellation, well, postponements of various primaries due to the virus. More immediately, Shakir said that Sanders, quote, is focused on the government response to the coronavirus outbreak and ensuring that we take care of working people and the most vulnerable. Reports later surfaced that Sanders was suspending his campaign, prompting spokesperson uh, Mike Seska to say that the candidate was, quote, not suspending. Nothing has changed since this morning's statement. 
In the meantime, Sanders' campaign deactivated digital ads purchased as recently as Tuesday. And on Tuesday night, before the uh, polls had even closed, I believe, in uh, Arizona, Sanders, like Biden, we'll get to him in a moment, uh, offered comments to supporters via streaming live video instead of at a rally all of uh, which have been suspended for all of the candidates right now for the time being, including Donald Trump, to my knowledge. Sanders' remarks were uh, focused on uh, not on the presidential race as much as his call for action on the coronavirus pandemic. He uh, sat at a desk and directed his remarks to supporters straight to the camera. Here's a bit of his uh, 18 or so minutes of remarks. Our country and, in fact, the world are facing an unprecedented series of crises. Uh, we're dealing with the coronavirus, uh, which is spreading throughout this country and throughout the world. We're dealing with a growing economic meltdown, which will impact tens of millions of workers in this country. Uh, we're dealing with a political crisis uh, as well. Uh, and I think the main point to be made uh, tonight is that in this moment of crisis, it is imperative that we stand together. What this country is experiencing right now is something that we have never experienced in the modern history of this country. That is, number one, a major pandemic uh, which threatens the health and, and, and lives of millions of our people. Uh, and on top of that, an economic crisis which threatens the jobs and the income of many, many, many millions of people. So we got some major crises, but I have the strong belief uh, that if we work together, uh, if we do not turn to fear and panic, uh, but if we understand that the way we solve this is by going forward as one people, remembering those who are hurting tonight and will be hurting in the future. This is the richest country in the history of the world. This is a country with unbelievable energy, with unbelievable talent, with incredible resources. We can do it. That was Bernie Sanders, Vermont Senator, speaking to supporters via live video stream after at least the media had called his losses in Florida and Illinois on Tuesday night while uh, Arizona was still being counted. But Sanders spoke to the unprecedented nature of the crisis, the fears of ordinary Americans and our ability to unite to solve big problems. He estimated that the federal government will ultimately need to appropriate around $2 trillion in funding to prevent widespread deaths and economic catastrophe. Sanders listed a broad swath of actions that he will propose to Congress, expanding Medicare to pay for health care, notably saying that this is not Medicare for all that he was calling for there. <laughs> yeah, he actually chuckled a little bit and said, we're not going to be able to get Medicare for all through Congress, but we're going to try to get this part through. He called for mobilizing the military to rapidly expand hospital capacity to convert U.S. manufacturing to produce medical equipment and tests. Uh, he called for major economic interventions, including direct cash payments of $2,000 to households every month for the duration, whatever that duration is. He uh, called for the expansion of unemployment insurance to cover all workers, including gig workers and independent contractors who so far are not really being dealt with at all in any of the legislation that has moved through Congress to date. 
Uh, he called for helping small businesses with direct paycheck replacement for workers to expand food assistance programs for the elderly, disabled and school children. Some of that was included in the uh, in the uh, uh, bill, the legislation that was finally passed by the U.S. Senate on Wednesday. He called for a moratorium on evictions and utility shutoffs and to provide rental and mortgage assistance to uh, waive student loan payments, farm loan payments and extend crop insurance. Any vaccines, he said, that are developed must be free to all and any bailout package must come with strict rules that protect workers, families, unions and customers and must block corporations and corporate executives from profiting off the crisis. In his own remarks on Tuesday night, former Vice President Joe Biden discussed some of the same things. And on Wednesday, even Donald Trump embraced several of those ideas. Let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with uh, with that before we are joined by an election official in Maryland who is now dealing right now with how elections will now be run in her state for the duration of this crisis after the state's Republican governor on Tuesday postponed their planned presidential primary, but is allowing one race scheduled for next month to proceed anyway, but only by mail-in ballot for the first time in state history. Is is any or all of that a good idea? We will get to that in a bit, but first a quick break as our coverage continues in these extraordinary times. Get used to it, I'm afraid, right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, confronting twin health and economic crises, Donald Trump announced on Wednesday that he will invoke emergency powers to marshal critical medical supplies against the coronavirus pandemic, threatening to overwhelm hospitals and other treatment centers. According to AP, the Senate acted, finally acted on Wednesday on the economic front, approving legislation that was passed by the House last week. Uh, take your time, Mitch McConnell. No rush. Actually, I heard it was Rand Paul who was holding this up for a few days uh, because he was attempting to block this measure because he wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan. 
So he was trying to muck it up with some other unrelated thing when we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Yes, that would uh, a bill that guarantees sick leave to workers who are uh, sickened by the disease. It expands unemployment benefits. Uh, it expands a food uh, security programs. Uh, and and uh, Rand Paul was holding it up to get out of Afghanistan. Okay, brilliant. And it also didn't help that Mitch McConnell did take the weekend off and to go attend an off. event Why with rush? Supreme Court Justice Why? Brett Kavanaugh. What's the hurry? Most of the provisions, however, uh, that are, are guaranteed only to small business employees, those companies with uh, fewer than 50 workers, uh, the others are exempt right now from many of the provisions that were finally passed by the Senate, uh, including uh, gig workers. They'll also be left out of that. They make up a huge portion of our economy at this point. They are, by and large, left out entirely. The measure would also cover the cost of coronavirus testing. That is, if anyone is actually able to get a test in this country, despite false claims and promises for the past several weeks by Donald Trump, most Americans are still, still, this many weeks later, still unable to get tested when they need a test. In any event, that uh, bill was finally passed by the Senate after the House passed it last week. It now heads to the uh, president's desk. He is expected to sign it. On Wednesday, Trump described himself as a wartime president mm. as virus cases surged and as the markets fell on Wednesday. And they fell bigly. The markets have now erased all gains, all gains seen since Trump's inauguration in January of 2017. It is as if it never happened. All of those uh, increases and the, the bragging that he done about all of the records on the stock market, those are all now gone. The Dow shedded another 1,300 points or about 6.3%. In trading on Wednesday, Trump announced a series of extraordinary steps that he promised to take today. Most immediately, he said he would employ the Defense Production Act as needed, giving the government more power to steer production by private companies and try to overcome shortages in masks and ventilators and other supplies. And can I just say that yesterday, Tuesday, in his press conference, he said that they had considered the Defense Production Act two weeks ago and had rejected it. But now two weeks later, no, once again, no rush. Take your time. You know, frontline hospital workers are out there dying because they don't have enough masks. Because we don't have enough production of masks. But anyway, maybe now we will. We will see a lot of the raw materials for those masks actually come from overseas, come from China, where a lot of the trade has now been stopped. Trump also said that he will expand the nation's testing capacity and deploy a Navy hospital ship with 1,000 beds to New York City, which is rapidly becoming an epicenter of the pandemic. He'll also send another ship out here to the West Coast. The Housing and Urban, Urban Development Department will suspend foreclosures and evictions through April. That's good. That's something that uh, Bernie Sanders was calling for as well, although this would only be, what, for the next two weeks, basically, yeah. as a quickly growing number of Americans are facing uh, lost jobs and uh, missing rent and mortgage payments. But as Trump laid out efforts to steady the economy, the markets plummeted nonetheless. Gone were the last of the gains that the Dow Jones Industrial Average had made since Trump took office. Hmm. 
Trump dismissed talk from his own Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who had suggested that the nation could be facing 20 percent unemployment numbers, 20 percent. Currently, we're around four, or at least we were before this crisis hit, 20 percent, and that that could come uh, in the short term, according to Mnuchin. Trump, however, disagrees. He said that's an absolute total worst case scenario. We're nowhere near it. Do you believe him? When he says that, nobody does. The answer is nobody does. No. Nobody believes anything this guy says. Hell of a place to be during the middle of a global pandemic. When asked why a number of celebrities like professional basketball players seem to have easier access to getting di- to a diagnostic tests than ordinary citizen citizens, uh, Trump showed very little concern, saying, quote, Perhaps that's the story of life. I've heard that happens on occasion. That's the U.S. president. That's actually what he said. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it goes. The administration has uh, told Americans to avoid groups now of more than 10 people and has told the elderly to stay home while a pointed uh, reminder was given to millennials to follow the guidelines and avoid social gatherings. Trump likened the effort to the uh, measures taken during World War II and said it would require national sacrifice. On that, he is right. He said, uh, quote, it's a war. I view it as, in a sense, a wartime president. No longer able to run for reelection on a healthy economy, uh, Trump was uh, taking on the mantle of a wartime leader after having played down the severity of the crisis for several weeks, losing about a month and a half of valuable time that might have been used to better prepare the nation or to contain the, uh, the, the, the virus entirely before it became a national epidemic. It is now, however, in all 50 states. The president also employed more nativist rhetoric at the briefing, continuing his recent habit of referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, which has been sharply criticized as racist because it is. Even while calling for the nation to leave partisanship aside and to pull together in this crisis, he continued to attack Democrats. He used the phrase Chinese virus repeatedly on his Twitter feed. And when he was asked about a report that a White House aide had referred to the virus as the Kung flu while talking to an Asian-American reporter, Trump did not signal disapproval of that offensive term. On uh, on Tuesday night, uh, the man who may be our next president, Joe Biden, spoke to supporters on a video stream with live rallies now called off because of the pandemic after his uh, big victories over Bernie Sanders in Florida and Illinois had been called on Tuesday. And as Arizona, where he appears to have won handily as well, was still counting ballots. Biden stood in front of a black backdrop in front of two American flags at a podium in what is clearly meant to present the former vice president in the light of a commander in chief. Good evening, everyone. Last week, I had the honor of speaking to all of you from Philadelphia the birthplace of the foundational documents of our democracy. Tonight, in keeping with the latest guidance from the CDC to avoid gatherings of more than 10 people, I'm speaking to you from my home in Wilmington, Delaware. And I hope all of you are staying safe. Talking and taking the recommended, the recommended precautions and talking to the docs, if you have one, to keep your social distance, to slow the spread of this virus, 
This pandemic has impacted every aspect of our lives and every aspect of this campaign. But most of all, my heart goes out to all of those of you who have lost a loved one, to those who have contracted the virus, to all the brave Americans who are working harder than ever to help their neighbors, and all those children that are home from school that are worried and don't know quite why. Doctors, nurses, EMTs, and public health officials, as well as the frontline emergency workers like firefighters and dedicated folks working to keep the shelves stocked in the grocery stores. You know, tackling this pandemic is a national emergency akin to fighting a war. And it's going to require leadership and cooperation from every level of government. And it's going to require us to move thoughtfully and decisively to quickly address both the public health crisis as well as the economic crisis. It's going to require us to pay attention to the medical and scientific and health experts. And it's going to require each of us to do our part. Yes, this is a moment where we need our leaders to lead, but it's also a moment where the choices and decisions we make as individuals are going to collectively impact on what happens, make a big difference in the severity of this outbreak and the ability of our medical and hospital systems to handle it. You know, I know we as a people are up to this challenge. We always have been. I know that we'll answer this moment of crisis with the best that we find in all of us, because that's what Americans always do, have done and what we do. That's who we are. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things when the need arises. And today, we are moving quickly to adapt our routines to meet this challenge. Americans in three states went to the polls today. I want to thank all the public officials and the poll workers who work closely with the public health authorities to assure safe opportunities for voting, to clean and disinfect voting booths, and to make sure the voters could cast their ballots while maintaining the distance from one another that was safe. You know, it's important for us to get through this crisis, protecting both the public health and our democracy. And we're doing it by building a broad coalition that we need to win in November with strong support from the African-American community, the Latino community, high school edu people, educated people like the folks I grew up with in my own neighborhood, labor, teachers, suburban women, veterans, firefighters, and so many more. And we're doing it with a common vision. Senator Sanders and I may disagree on tactics, but we share a common vision for the need to provide affordable health care for all Americans, reduce income inequity that has risen so drastically, to tackling the existential threat of our time, climate change. Senator Sanders and his supporters have brought a remarkable passion and tenacity to all of these issues. And together, they have shifted the fundamental conversation in this country. So let me say, especially to the young voters who have been inspired by Senator Sanders, I hear you. I know what's at stake. I know what we have to do. Our goal as a campaign and my goal as a candidate for president is to unify this party and then to unify the nation. You know, it's a moment like these that we realize we need to put politics aside and work together as Americans. The coronavirus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. It will not discriminate based on national origin, race, gender, or your zip code. It will touch people in positions of power as well as the most vulnerable people in our society. We're all in this together. This is a moment for each of us to see and believe the best in every one of us, to look out for our neighbor, to understand the fear and stress that so many are feeling, to care for the elderly, 
the elderly couple down the street, to thank the healthcare worker, the doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, the grocery store cashier, and the people restocking the shelves, to believe in one another. Because I assure you, when we do that, when we see the best in each of us, we lift this nation up and we'll get through this together. That's how we've always done it. God bless you all. And my special prayer for those of you in the front lines of the crisis, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, caring for the virus victims and their families. My prayers are going out for everyone. My hopes are high because I believe in times of crisis, Americans have always stepped up. We have to step up and care for one another. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening. That was former Vice President and current Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden from his home in Delaware addressing the nation after his victories on Tuesday in Florida and Illinois and before he would eventually go on to win in Arizona as well. Ohio, however, which was supposed to vote on Tuesday as well, canceled its primary at the very last minute due to concerns about coronavirus and safety at the polls for both voters and poll workers alike. And while Florida and Illinois and Arizona held elections on Tuesday, turnout was very low at the polls with a shortage of poll workers, sanitation supplies and concerns about large gatherings while public officials were advising at the very same time against them. At the very same time, the voters were being encouraged to vote. That, sadly, will have to stop for the time being, and we will be joined next by an election official in the middle of doing just that in her state as her state scrambles to move to all vote-by-mail elections if they can. Is that a good idea? Are states and counties ready for that on such short notice? Are they prepared to deal with the risks that come with such elections? Allison McLaughlin of Montgomery County, Maryland, joins us next to discuss exactly that right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Bozeman Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com uh, So while we have been covering the 2020 horse race, as usual, our focus continues to be much more on the track conditions on which the horses are running since those track conditions, perhaps this year even more than ever, particularly due to the coronavirus, often determine as much or more than anything else which horse actually wins. Over the past week, we have seen cancellations and postponements of primary elections in Louisiana, Georgia, Kentucky, Ohio, and just yesterday in Maryland, which moved its previously scheduled April 28 presidential primary to June 2nd instead, under the presumption that by June we'll actually be able to hold a primary that could not be held in late April due to the COVID-19 crisis. 
But one election that will not be canceled in Maryland on April 28 is the special U.S. House election to fill the vacant seat left by the late Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings in Maryland's 7th Congressional District, which is in Baltimore. That election, according to the state's Republican governor, Larry Hogan, will move forward anyway, but it will be an all-male election, an all-male ballot, not all-male versus female election, Uh, perhaps akin to what we have been uh, discussing that we are likely to see in a number of upcoming primaries and even perhaps in all 50 states this November in the general election, if the virus continues its current trajectory. As I've noted many times over the years, I'm no fan of vote by mail, except in cases where voters literally cannot make it to the polls on Election Day or in jurisdictions where voters are forced to vote on unverifiable and now germy touchscreen voting systems at the polls on Election Day, though in those cases I always recommend that Voters drop their vote-by-mail ballot off in person, if possible. The Kansas Democratic Party this week has announced that it will automatically send mail-in ballots to all registered Democrats in the state by March 30, for example, for its May 2nd primary, which is run in in that uh, case, in that state, by the party rather than by the state itself. In-person voting is still scheduled to take place on May 2nd in Kansas, as of now as well. But there are a number of concerns with all vote-by-mail elections. Our guest on yesterday's broadcast, the legendary 30-year Leon County, Florida Supervisor of Elections and Voting Rights and Transparency Champion Ion Sancho, noted how, uh, how it is much easier for election officials to inappropriately reject absentee ballots in states without good procedures for notifying voters about deficiencies in their mail ballots, such as perceived mismatched signatures as determined by elections officials who are not experts in handwriting analysis. Without procedures in place to notify voters of such deficiencies and allow them ample time in the days and weeks even after an election to come in and cure those deficiencies, Vote-by-mail ballots can be an easy way for bad election officials to suppress the vote. We've discussed many other concerns with VBM elections over the years, many of which were uh, summed up this week by Joseph Marks in the Washington Post's Cybersecurity 202 column, where he writes that officials are now forced to contemplate contingency plans to potentially overhaul their voting systems so Americans can still cast their ballots in a pandemic and still ensure the process is secure. One major option surfacing now is surging vote-by-mail programs so citizens can avoid the polls, he writes. But this route could create security problems of its own, especially if it's implemented in a tight time frame. For example, he writes, officials would have to put safeguards in place to ensure mailed-in ballots are secure throughout their journey to election offices and to prevent U.S. adversaries or those seeking to tamper with the vote from sending in phony ballots to sow confusion. They'd also have to guard against misinformation related to the vote-by-mail process and figure out how to deliver ballots to people without street addresses. There's also a heightened concern about people coercing friends and family members to vote for particular candidates with write-in ballots because the voters are not 
entering a private voting booth or cubicle to cast their votes. Without that privacy, abusive husbands, for example, could force a wife to vote a certain way or a hard partisan employer could require employees to prove that they voted a certain way. Elections officials around the country are now confronting all of these concerns and many others as they re-examine their plans to try and carry out, arguably, the most critical election in our nation's history in the very middle of the coronavirus pandemic, which has resulted in stay-at-home and quarantine orders, which, according to medical and infectious disease experts, are likely to become more severe, not less so, over the coming days, weeks, and months. Joining us now is one such official who was suddenly thrust into the middle of this process, requiring a very quick change of plans for primary elections in the state of Maryland, with Governor Hogan's announcement yesterday that the April presidential primary would move to June, while the U.S. House special election in the state's 7th district would become an all-vote-by-mail election. Uh, joining us now to discuss that is Allison McLaughlin. She is the deputy election director from Montgomery County, Maryland. That's the most populous county in the state. It's located uh, right next to Washington, D.C. She also serves as the uh, secretary on the board of advisors to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission and as a vice chair of the National Association of Counties. Who knew there even was such an association? Allison McLaughlin, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me on. There's a national association for everything, Brad. I guess there is. Who knew? I know this is a very busy time, so I am tremendously grateful for you uh, making some of it uh, available to us, Allison. Uh, first, I'm, I'm curious. Your Twitter profile reads, uh, quote, I used to lobby on election policy. I became an election official to hashtag be the change. Uh, very happy to hear that. On on whose half did you uh, behalf did you uh, lobby, and and for what sort of changes, Allison? I lobbied for uh, state and local governments. I actually worked once upon a time for the National Conference of State Legislatures, mm -hmm. and then later for the National Association of Counties, until I caught the bug, as they say, and, <laughs> yes. and became an election official. And, and have you been able to achieve any of the changes since becoming an election official that uh, you wanted to achieve as a lobbyist? Well, you know, it was, I, I, I like to say that I, I've kind of worked this backwards. You're supposed to know what you're talking about and then go lobby on Capitol Hill about it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I kind of came at this in the opposite direction. I, I started off lobbying on issues mm -hmm. that I did not feel that I understood mm. in as in-depth a way as I do now. Um, and so now I've been an election official for for 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I do see on the inside the, you know, the ways in which voters can find their ballots not being counted, the mm -hmm. ways in which voters can be disenfranchised, the kinds of problems that, you know, that can lead to that. Um, and so that's what I now get to make my life's work out of. So uh, um, I guess on that uh, on that point, then, let's uh, first start with the uh, special congressional election to replace the late Congressman Elijah Cummings uh, in Baltimore. 
That will uh, still move forward as scheduled on April 28, but it will now be an all-vote-by-mail election. I know that is not your uh, your county, uh, I believe, but from uh, your understanding of this and talking to other officials in the state, is there is there time for local election officials to change their plans in Baltimore to an all-mail election in just about, what do they got, six weeks' time now at this point? Well, the way we see it, we don't have a choice. Mm. The way we see it, there's a, a whole lot of really challenging problems in conducting an election under these circumstances right now. Mm-hmm. And the best way for us to serve everyone and to serve everyone, you know, in avoiding the the kinds of stresses and strains that we see on polling places and that we saw on Tuesday is for us to mail everyone a ballot. Mm-hmm. And immediately that takes the, the pressure off of the polls that allows us to deal with the fact that our workforce is so significantly diminished in staffing a polling place election mm-hmm. and we're working with the state board of elections and you know the various folks who are involved in trying to craft the plan for how these elections are going to be conducted you know to make sure that we have the in-person options for the people who need them mm-hmm. but to get a ballot to everyone that's our that's our goal that is now the plan for the uh 7th Congressional District election, Mm -hmm. and local officials across the state of Maryland, all 24 counties, all 24 local election directors are all together advocating to get the June 2nd election conducted by mail as well. Okay, so let me, uh, there was a lot there. So A, that special U.S. House election, by the way, that that could not be postponed. We were speculating yesterday that couldn't be postponed because it's a a federal election and it it has to be held on uh, April 28th. Well, I'm I'm not an attorney to be in a position to parse that, <laughs> but that was certainly the governor's determination. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's what uh, he decided, and that's why that one stayed. And in that case, I, I don't I don't know what the legal reasoning was behind it. Uh-huh. I know that the decision was to keep it on April 28th. I I don't know you know, for sure, whether gotcha. that could be postponed or not. Gotcha. Okay, so for now, it is not being postponed, and they have, uh, in fact, decided to send vote-by-mail ballots to every registered voter, not just voters who, who request it, but to everyone listed as a, as a voter in the uh, 7th Congressional District, uh, as a Democratic. Uh, no, I guess it would be every voter in that case, right? That's an, not a primary. That's the actual uh, special election. Correct. Every voter. Okay. and Now, that takes the burden off of our workers mm-hmm. to individually enter in absentee ballot applications for every single voter who requests one. And that to, that, to us as the local election officials, is one of the big reasons. Number one, to get the ballot into voters' hands. Mm-hmm. But number two, because for all of the talk about the efficiencies and the challenges of, of scaling up to a vote-by-mail election, we've got a lot of challenges in scaling up to a high volume of absentee ballot requests mm-hmm. as well. Mailing a, vote, mailing a ballot to everyone mm-hmm. allows us to then focus our efforts on the intake side of that challenge and scale up the intake without also having to scale up massive amounts of data entry as well. So, Because otherwise, every single uh, request for an absentee ballot, you guys actually have to key in individually as opposed to just saying, we're sending them to everybody. And right now, every single absentee ballot application that we're encouraging voters to send in mm-hmm for the June 2nd election requires us to have a, a worker at their computer 
handling the issuance, reviewing and handling the issuance of every single one of those absentee ballots. Wow. Uh, so that is w- what all you say, all 24 counties now are uh, seeking from the state permission to do that exact same thing for the June for what is now the presidential primary on, on June 2, uh, as well as other uh, primaries and municipal elections that would be held on that same day. That's correct. We want to mail every voter a ballot. And what's the state saying? So you have to go to the State Board of Elections in Maryland. Is that how that works? And and, uh, get approval from, I guess, Linda Lamone, who still heads the state board? Well, the the governor has the authority to make the emergency declaration to make the um, pronouncement. Mm -hmm. Um, What the governor has done is has directed the State Board of Elections to put together a plan, Mm -hmm. which is due by April 3rd. And that's what we are working with the State Board of Elections to try to to flesh out the way a vote-by-mail election would look. Now, I listed a bunch of concerns that uh, I have and that others have about vote-by-mail elections uh, regarding fraud. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, even in cases where it's uh, where the ballots are requested. Now you're talking about sending out a ballot to every voter, every registered voter. And by the way, we noted yesterday, and I want to do it again today, uh, wherever, whatever state you're in, please check your voter registration. Make sure the address is correct and up to date, uh, because this may be coming to all 50 states. And if they send you an absentee ballot, to a place you don't live, they don't forward those. Um, so you want to make sure that's in order. But uh, of the concerns that I listed, um, has this been a topic of conversation? Will there be, for example, time to uh, cure any deficiencies that are seen in these absentee ballots? And and what about you know things like fraud with all of those ballots that are going to be out there and could be stolen from people's mailboxes? Well, Maryland's in a little bit of a different situation than a lot of the other states on this one right now. Mm-hmm. We don't do signature verification. Our current processes are that the the way that someone basically challenges the signature on their absentee ballot is if they go to the polls and vote a provisional ballot. Um, you know, we are uh, we handle our intake of ballots such that we have uh, one voter, one ballot. Uh, you know, for obviously, we when we mail out the ballot, it goes to an address, mm-hmm. and then the voter who is at that address who takes receipt of that ballot mails it back in, one voter, one ballot. Um, but then on our end of that, when we take the receipt, then it's it's only in situations where we have more than one ballot from someone that we're then doing the signature verification. Mm. Um, and so that's a little bit of a different situation than you would have in other states. It is different, but doesn't that open the door to um, you know me being able to fill out my uh, fill out a ballot for my wife or stealing one from my neighbor's uh, mailbox and and sending it in and voting myself? Well, when we see that now, what we find is that uh, we'll get a ballot from you know the husband who signed their, or I should say maybe from the, you know, the mother who mm-hmm. signed their son's ballot mm-hmm. on their behalf, and then the son requests a ballot, and then the son mails in a ballot, and now we've got a situation where we've got two ballots from that voter, and we refer those that information and those signatures uh, for prosecution, and the, and the mother's going to get uh, get contacted <laughs> by law enforcement. 
and uh, boy, and I hate to. Uh, that's more often, that's the situation we find ourselves in more often. Oh, I, and and I get that, uh, but as you describe it, Allison, I'm thinking, well, in this case, you're not going to have the son calling in and requesting an absentee ballot because the son would have already been sent one, um, and might, you know, never know that someone else had cast it for him. Well, we will. We're still, we'd still fully expect to have a high volume of voters who would be calling us saying, where's my ballot? I haven't gotten my ballot. Mm. Um, you know, we'd still anticipate having a lot of staff here doing the data entry to uh, enter in those requests and correcting the addresses. Obviously, you've always got a good percentage of uh, people who are on the voter registration list who have an, an outdated or an inactive address. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we will absolutely still have to handle a significant volume of those kinds of requests. We will obviously still have to have some level of in-person voting. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we are what we are intending to do and advocating for this is to take the volume pressure off of that system so that we can handle the, all of those kinds of situations with much better care. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm all in favor of it at this point. I mean, it seems to me like we've got no choice, really, that elections officials have no choice, that voters have no choice. Uh, I am concerned about you know some of the procedures that are being put in place in a very short time frame. Um, and if we are, you know, paying attention to the concerns about fraud and so forth, then there's, uh, you know, other issues. Uh, Mark Elias, the uh, Democratic election attorney, um, has argued that it's, you know, important that there are a number of things that need to be in place, safeguards that need to be in place. One of them is that uh, postage must be prepaid. Have you guys uh, received any directives from the governor yet as far as, uh, whether the envelopes to, to mail back the ballots will, in fact, be uh, prepaid. Otherwise, he argues it would be a, akin to a poll tax to have to put a stamp on it. Yes, we do expect that the, uh, that the return envelopes would have prepaid postage on them. And it, it, at this point, um, do you see the November election, and, you know, as you're in touch with You know, you're the uh, vice chair at the National Association of Counties, so I I presume you're hearing from a lot of counties around the country. Uh, Is this, uh, A, what other states and counties are planning to do in the primaries? But are they, in the bigger picture, are we looking at potentially a 50-state vote-by-mail election, uh, general election, this November? My horizon right now is the primary election. Gotcha. We really haven't begun to to look ahead mm-hmm. at what the public health situation is going to be by November. Uh, you know, right now we have um, uh, obviously several states who have already conducted their primaries. Mm-hmm. Every state situation is going to be different as far as what their what their situation is, what their options are. In Maryland, because we have a statewide contract that we could leverage in order to mail a ballot out to everyone, and because you know, we are, we're always one of those states, election after election after election, where you see long lines at the polls, mm-hmm. we have a lot of voters per precinct. Mm-hmm. That's just the way that our you know, political culture has been. And so congestion at the polls is a, is a very real concern. Mm-hmm. It is a mass community event on Election Day, and we are really struggling to come up with ways that we can achieve the social distancing that we need. And so, you know, that's where we see this, this option, this opportunity to take that pressure off instead of having 
10% of voters request an absentee ballot and 90% of voters show up in person. Mm -hmm. The goal here is to get 90% of voters to vote that ballot by mail and then only have to set up a polling place environment to accommodate maybe 10% of voters or less than 10% of voters in order to take that, that pressure off the public health situation that we'll otherwise find ourselves in. And I should note that uh, Maryland, along with the state of Georgia, back in 2002, I believe it was, that uh, were the first two states to go to all touchscreen voting systems across the entire state. Georgia is sticking with theirs. They're actually getting a new one. But uh, Maryland, just to confirm, Maryland has uh, gotten rid of all of the touchscreens other than as assistive devices. You guys now uh, uh, vote across the state on hand-marked paper ballots, correct? That's correct. We're predominantly uh, uh, pre-printed paper ballots mm -hmm. with the ovals. We, we do have a, a limited number of the ballot marking devices available for you. Has, has that eased up uh, the lines, by the way, at the polling places since you've gone from the uh, touchscreens to the paper ballots? Well, I mean, I think what has eased the lines most in our case has been that we have had some expansion of vote, a little bit of expansion of vote by mail. More so, we've had more of an expansion of early voting. Mm -hmm. And just simply giving voters more choices mm -hmm. has been, um, you know, the best strategy to reduce the lines. Last We've question. got so many different steps in the process from checking in to getting your ballot to taking it to the scanner. You know, voting is voting in person just involves it involves lines and congestions, particularly mm. first thing in the morning, which is what we're trying to avoid. Last question for you, Allison McLaughlin. The uh, National Lawyers Committee uh, for Civil Rights Under Law has actually been critical. I was surprised to see this, been critical of the, the various postponements that we've seen of the primaries, uh, charging that, well, we voted during World War One and World War Two, and that officials uh, had plenty of time to take action in advance and that uh, we should carry out these primary elections on schedule. Your, uh, your response to that? Well, we're deferring to the public health experts on this one. Postponing an election would not be our first choice as election officials. We had polling place leases in effect for April 28th, and we're, we're scrambling now to verify, reconfirm, identify polling places for use instead on, on June 2nd. Uh, that would not have been our first choice, but we'll defer to the public health experts on that one. Allison McLaughlin is the Deputy Election Director for Montgomery County, Maryland. She also serves as Secretary on the Board of Advisors to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission and as Vice Chair of the National Association of Counties. You can find her on the Twitters under her strangely spelled first name, which is Allison, and it is A-L-Y-S-O-U-N to uh, say hello to her on Twitter. Allison McLaughlin, really appreciate you spending, uh, uh, giving us a, a portion of your time today. I know you're incredibly busy. Thank you, and I hope you don't mind if we stay in touch uh, as this entire fine mess moves forward in the weeks ahead. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And good luck. All right, we have got to get out. My thanks yes. to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. It is a great honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and family as we all go through this together. My thanks to those of you who are able to stop by bradblog.com slash donate. 
to support our work in these uh, troubling and difficult times. It is uh, much needed and greatly appreciated if you can help. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. It'd be good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and I hope you will find, follow, and share all that we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters where you can find me at the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>